Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and with me today is Chad. How are you, Chad? Hey, I'm doing good, Al. How's it going? How's it going in your part of the state? Oh, not too bad. Uh, you know, we're finally we're almost into summer. I think um, it got to like I think about seventy down here today. Yeah, we were right about there today as well, so... Yeah, it's just like the few weeks before we uh, recorded this, it's been... I don't know about you, because you're a little further north than I am. I mean, we were just, like, really weird, where it was, like... It felt almost more like like late March, early April yeah. than, than, you know, mid, mid-May. mid It's it's ugh, It's like there's this Facebook post a friend of mine made. It had this beautiful summer scene of a person on a lake in a canoe and there's this clear blue sky and everything's this dark green of summer and then it said i love summer in wisconsin last year it fell on a wednesday yes i actually saw that yeah and i i remember a couple years ago when we were having this weird weather where it was just unseasonably cool uh one of my friends on facebook posted i hope summer falls on a weekend this year yeah well you know Two days ago, we had frost advisory for the morning. <laughs> oh, geez. And, you know, while, while it's bad where, you know, while it can be kind of bad where we are sometimes where I'm in northeast Wisconsin and you are more in north central Wisconsin, I've heard like way, way further north in like the, I think it's like Ashfield and Bayfield or somewhere like that or like Ashland and Bayfield, mm-hmm. which is basically about as far north as you can get in Wisconsin before you actually start getting into Canada. And up there, sometimes they have snow well until like into June. So, well, I mean, we got, we got uh rib mountain here and there's still snow up there. So, <laughs> yep. Which technically of course isn't a mountain, but no, um, it's, it's 14 feet short. Yeah. And uh, actually, I think it's only like it's the second tallest point in Wisconsin. Yeah, something I, like that. Yeah, because there's some other. I remember learning about this when I was on a geology field trip back in high school. We went to Rim Mountain, and when we were standing on top of the observation tower there, our uh, teacher pointed to um, another uh, hill off in the distance. I think it's called Tim's Hill. Yep, there's Tim's Hill and there's Mosinee Hill. Yeah, and I think one of them, Tim's Hill, is like twenty some feet taller than uh, the than uh, Rib Mountain is. So yeah, it's it's. I mean, literally, when you're up on Rib Mountain, if you're in that observation tower, you're technically as high as the lowest mountain in the world. You know, <laughs> you are technically at the height of a mountain. Yep. So if any of you are ever in the Central Wisconsin area, definitely stop by uh, Rim Mountain. It was a pretty interesting park as I remember it. So They can always get a hold of me. I'll give a tour of the area. Yep, or maybe, maybe stop by for some gaming. And Hey, there you go. Yep, and another <laughs> fun fact, which I recall from my geology field trip back then, is I believe that uh, Rim Mountain and those other like uh, other two larger hills, Mosinee and, and Tim, um, they were actually part of an ancient... Um, Oh, the geological features. I think it's like a batholith, where is just this huge, you know, is basically a huge magma chamber. Mm-hmm. Or it, of course, it used to be many years ago. And then um, the, I believe those the Rim Mountain and those other two hills are made mostly of quartzite. So they were these quartz. There were these large chunks of quartzite that were in this 
uh, magma chamber and an ancient volcano, and they're the only things that are left right now. So, okay, are we done being educational now? Can we start going to the uh, the entertaining, hope, hopefully entertaining conversation? Well, let's let yeah, let's let's do that. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sure if you guys wanted to be wanted to be educated, you could go watch something on the Discovery Channel. But anyways, uh, let's move on to today's topic. And the topic today is how much is too much? And what I mean by that, we're going to be talking about one of the trends in role-playing games to make lots of additional material. And some of it is to be expected. So there's a couple of types of material that I think we it's fair to leave out of this conversation. First are adventures, you know, modules. Second would be things like monster manuals, you know, books that contain pre-generated monsters and NPCs that can you can use. And then finally, game world settings. So what we're going to focus on, most people call them splat books. So these would be things like, you know, a fighter's handbook, a ranger's handbook, an alchemist's handbook. Uh, basically, you know, it's like each class has its own individual handbook. And and then, you know, when we get into third edition, it's it got even more crazy because there were source books for more stuff as well. And um, we're probably going to be talking a lot about Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I'm sure you can probably fill us in with Pathfinder because... I think it is fair to talk about Pathfinder alongside D&D. Absolutely, yeah. We can talk. I, I can talk Pathfinder. I can talk D&D. Um, let's see. What else I got on the... The old gaming know, shelf? On my gaming shelf here. Um, you know, yeah. I, was big, I was a big third ed guy. And, and I suppose we can start there because they are the biggest... The biggest they, as far as splat books? Yeah, they, they have so many splat books. There is so much... That they have out that, I mean, if somebody put the money into it to have everything, they got to have a better job than I do. (laughs) (laughs) More disposable income. Maybe they don't have a mortgage and children uh, like we have, but... That could be. That could be. Yeah, and I don't know, because second edition got pretty big, too. I'm not as much into third edition, so I'm not sure. I mean, I'll take your word for it when you say that there's a lot there. Um. Because I know that, well, of some of the games I've played, uh, one game system that hardly hard had ugh, one game system I played that hardly had anything in the way of splat was Dream Park. Um, for that one, I remember uh, the main with aside from the few adventures, because unfortunately Dream Park, I don't think it ever really took off. It. Uh, you know, was fairly small. There were a few adventures released for it, but other than the main player's handbook, they released like a combination dungeon master screen that had a booklet inside of it that contained various, you know, various types of equipment that maybe weren't covered in the player's handbook, but it also had a nice selection of NPCs. Um, And they had everything from fictional NPCs like Robin Hood and King Arthur and uh, you know Blackbeard to historical figures like uh, Miyamoto Musashi, uh, the you know the famous Japanese samurai, and um, I think they also had like uh, Robert E. Lee in there as well. 
and, you know, a few other historical personalities uh, to go with it. So that one, I think, was nice. It didn't really have a lot of splat, and right. it really didn't need as much because it was designed to be really flexible where you could run it with a minimal amount of rules. Mm-hmm. Now, now I guess maybe we should take a step back and see what each of us think of splat books. Okay, how we would define it? Well, no, not how we would define it, what we actually think of them. Okay. I mean, well, are, are they good... I guess my big question is, are they good for the game? Splat books, friend or foe? Right, because when I look at it, it's obviously good for the companies that put them out. Yes. And and if it wasn't, we wouldn't see as many as we see. Exactly. So people are buying them, but are they using them? You know what I mean? Yes, and that I think is a really good question. And I am more on the neutral to pro splat side. And one of, but I think it can be overdone. I don't think there's anything wrong with releasing additional player material. And that's personally how I would define a splat book. It's information to help you with creating a character and customizing the character beyond what you find in the, you know, the main player's handbook. Uh, Like I said, I think in a moderate, small to moderate amount some splat can be good but i do agree it can get way overdone it can get out of hand Mm -hmm. and and i think that was the problem with um third edition and three five splat books is there was so much information out there that really all you had to do to break a character beyond what even a, a a seasoned dm could handle is read. And I second edition, I know, don't get me wrong, I love second edition. It's one of my favorite role-playing games, and, you know, I grew up on AD&D second edition. I mean, I had a little experience uh, playing basic and first before that, but, you know, the majority of my gaming has been with second edition AD&D. But I do admit, I think they did get a little too carried away with some of the splat books that they released during the uh, during the you know the, the waning years of TSR, and I, so I know that you tend to be a little bit more on the anti splat. So I, I I really am. I um, not saying I've never used them. Not saying that I don't even own some of them because I do. Um, but you know, I tend to use them. A little background on me when I game. I play usually a rogue or a fighter of some type. I'm not a magic guy, so right there, half 90, 80% of the splat books don't have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. So that might have something to do with the way I look at them, too. You know, um, when it comes to splat books, it's for magicians, it's for or, um, wizards, it's for sorcerers, it's for. You know, these, these heavy magic-using characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, when I'm, when I'm role-playing, I don't want to deal with the, oh, my God, did I remember this spell? You know, did I learn this spell? Did I... To me, that kind of takes the fun out of it. Yeah, and one of the problems I know with uh, splat books, especially for a game master, is if someone says, oh, yeah, I've got this kit or this prestige class that lets me inflict 
triple damage once per day. You know, it's like if you don't have that actual book, how do you know if that person's telling the truth? Right. And I, I know I've annoyed my DM a bit in my current second edition campaign. Um, and I think I may have mentioned this on an episode. I'm not sure, but I'm currently playing a dwarven swashbuckler. And he has an armor class of negative two that, and he's only wearing leather armor and using a buckler. The reason he can get such a low armor class is because of the various skills and, you know, weapon uh, proficiencies that he's taken. Mm -hmm. Now on the downside, some of that stuff does require him to be using a very specific set of weapons and armor Uh, as a swashbuckler. He gets a plus two bonus to his armor class, but only if he's wearing leather armor or uh, lighter right. or unarmored. So in a case like that, it's like, okay, yeah, he can certainly put on a suit of plate mail, but if he does, then he loses his, you know, the plus two bonus that he has. And then the other skills require him to be using uh, fencing blades or, like I said, a specific set of weapons right. uh, to go right. along with it. But it kind of annoyed him at, I think, at first because while most of the other characters in the party had armor classes of about, I would say, between four to six, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty much the only way he was able to hit me at that low level is if he got a a natural 20, which, of course, was bad for me because that meant critical hits. Well, and, and, and that's the thing, too, is as a DM, if I look at it from a DM side, so I've got this one character who's using splat books in order to bring their AC down. It's great for them, but if I want to actually hit them, you know, I've got to bring in a creature that might take out the rest of the party. Exactly, and he did actually, the module that he was running us on when we uh, first started it, it was a Goodman Games module that was written for 3rd edition, but he converted it into D20, he converted it into 2nd edition. Okay. And there were a couple of creatures in there. I think they were called kobold dragon skins or something like that. Okay. Where essentially, they're a kobold that has a, a breath weapon. So, yeah, my, you know, that character or that monster did uh, take a good chunk out of my character's hit points when we had one encounter and then... Um, also, we I remember there was one time he came really close to dying because there was a, you know, there was a wizard that, you know, was casting spells. And in our last game session, I remember he took a good chunk out of my hit points because he had two mages casting magic missile spells at me. And that's a problem. It doesn't matter how good your armor class is. In second yeah. edition, <laughs> magic missile will hit you. Yep. So... Now let's go back a little bit. All right. So we've pretty much, we've we've both pretty much said where we stand on the topic of splat books. Chad, you're a little bit more against. I'm more neutral to pro splat books. Yeah, and I would say I'm probably neutral to against. Okay. So why do you think that these game companies release all of these splat books? Because people buy them. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think also another reason they do this is because it's part of the nature of a role-playing game. I mean, if you sell someone... Okay, let me go back a little bit. If someone buys a copy of the Player's Handbook, the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual, honestly, those three supplements alone 
you know, those give the that gives someone all they really need to run a lot of gaming sessions. You oh, know, absolutely. And, yep, and yeah, it's pretty much in second edition. You've got those three books. You know, you're you're pretty much set. Everything else is just, you know, a side helping of French fries and something else. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my train of poutine. thought there. We'll call it poutine, French fries and gravy. Yes, exactly. So anything else is just a side order of French fries and gravy. So this is, of course, one of the ways they try to make more money is because if the if TSR only went on the philosophy that, okay, we're going to release Player's Handbook, Monster Manual, Dungeon Master's Guide, and a bunch of adventures, then... Well, you don't have to buy the adventures. I mean, we've, and we've talked about this a little bit when we, a few episodes ago when we did game mastering on the fly, how, you know, it's entirely possible to run, you know, a campaign without buying a lot of modules. And, you know, so that's one of the things they got to do is they got to keep releasing products as a way to keep people invested in the system and keep having people buy it. Now, to some extent, I think that can backfire but we'll probably go a little bit into that later on. Well, here, here's something for you to think about. I, don't, I know you haven't done any if, or much, if any, 5th edition. I've done some. Okay. 5th edition, you have your, your standard three, you know, your player's handbook, your DMG, and your um, Monster, Manual. Monster Manual. They have not released a splat book yet. They have only released hard-covered three-part adventures. Yeah, I've... I've noticed that that they've seen of Wizards has taken a much different approach with a uh, fifth edition than the, than they've done with the previous editions. Where I think, do you think they're trying to focus more on quality as opposed to quantity? I'm I'm kind of hoping so because I really enjoy the mechanics for fifth ed. They they very much remind me of an early edition type game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously D twenty. It's it's not Thaco. It's not a percentile type thing, but. It kind of has that feel of, um, you know, AD&D or, or first edition or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, because you're not, they are not going overboard with character options in this one. Right, you and know, they slimlined everything, um, like feats. You can take feats, but then you lose something else. Yeah, and I have to say, I do like that approach they took with feats in fifth edition where you don't get as many of them, but they do more. So right. that I liked. Um, that's one of the, I think that was probably one of the better, if not probably one of the best design choices that they made with fifth edition. But yeah, I've noticed that too, where they've taken a lot different approach than uh, third and fourth. And I'm sure, and well, and then what TSR did was second. But again, then again, TSR has been defunct for uh, quite some time now. So we well, yeah, and what TSR did was they were struggling for money, so they were trying to make money. Then that's and that's what drove that whole we need to get these things out we need to get them out we need to get them out we need to get them out so that they get cash back in yeah and i think that's one of the things that unfortunately came to bite tsr in the butt because as i recall near the end of their lifetime they had released i think it was like 12 novels in a year um or so i i know dan and i we've my, my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast, we've talked about this, and I think he was saying, saying that they released like a dozen or so novels in a year, and the problem is they weren't selling. So as a result, 
they had all this un, unsold stock that they had to buy back from these these publishing houses. Yep, that was part of what killed them. Yep, and so again, to get kind of back into the splat book thing, if we go back to first, well, Basic didn't really have a lot of splat. I'm not sure if you'd consider this splat or not. I've talked about the Creature Crucible series. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I know I've talked about it here and there on the show. Essentially what it is, ways to play different types of monster characters as as PCs. Would, right. Just out of curiosity, would you consider something like that splat or not, not really as much? I, I guess there's an argument either way. You know, what they did going forward is now if you want to play a variant like that, it's in the monster manual. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Technically, it probably is splat, but just in the loosest sense of the word, in my opinion. Yeah, and then probably the only other thing... Well, see, basic was kind of weird, because, of course, they had the basic set, which was one to three. Then they came out with the expert set, which was up to, I think, like, level 14. Then, like, the companion set, which I think was, like, level 14, 15 to, like, level 20-something... Then the master set, which was up to level 36, and then the immortal set, which was for beyond level 36. Mm -hmm. And eventually, and I have to say, this is, I think, another one of those really good moves by TSR, is they eventually brought all those rules together in the the rules cyclopedia, which, you know, you can get the PDF of it for only uh, $10 on you know, from their store on a drive through RPG. Oh, a buddy of mine just picked up the rule cyclopedia. Oh, how much did he, so did he have to give up uh, one arm for it or, or did they make him pay an arm and a leg? No, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna hate this guy and you don't even know him. He was rummage sailing $3. Oh, he's a buddy of mine and I hate him. Oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> see, but though, unrelated topic, that's one of the things I love about rummage sales. You oh, never God, know yeah. what you're going to find. And um, actually, if, several months ago, I was at Goodwill. And in the board game section, I got the the basic, you know, I got the, the basic box set that not only wasn't in, you know, there was some wear and tear on the box, but the books inside were really good condition. And it even included the old-fashioned dice, and it even still had the crayon that you would use to color in the numbers. Wow. Three, like, two bucks. Two wow. or three bucks. So, yeah, it, like I said, it was more of an nostalgia trick because, you know, trip because I already had the books, but still, I mean, come on. That, like I said, that's what I love about secondhand places. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. you can get a really good deal because people don't know that they have something that if they went to eBay they might be able to get a lot of money for it. Right, yeah. And, you know, and it, it's, uh, I don't know. I've never gotten that lucky. I've never found that, you know, I've never found that game. But, I mean, I've found a lot of board games at places like Goodwill and just shopping, you know, rummage sales. Yep. But, anyway, so, uh, you know, you're right. Basic didn't have a whole lot of splat. First edition, I think, was also still pretty low on the splat level because, okay, you had your player's handbook, you had the Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual 1, Monster Manual 2, and, you know, Fiend Folio. And then 
I mean, the only real splat book I would think would be probably Unearthed Arcana. Because, I mean, I wouldn't really consider things like Oriental Adventures or the, like, the Wilderness, um, you know, the Wilderness or the Dungeoneer's Guides, Uh Manual of the Plains. I really wouldn't consider those as much splat because uh, it's been a while since I've cracked open my copy of uh, Oriental Adventures. But as I recall on that one, they, um, you know, they did go through a lot, they did, cover a lot of the stuff that was already in the, the, you know, the original first edition player's handbook. Right, right. But, you know, a lot of those, I would consider those more as settings. Yeah, and I really don't consider settings splat, mainly because, well, if they're done right, I wouldn't consider them splat, because you look at some of these D&D settings, they, they bring new things to the table. Um, yep. I mean, did you ever do a lot of gaming with Dragonlance, or did you ever get much into Dragonlance? Middle-earth. Or, uh, not Middle-earth, I'm sorry. Um, Forgotten Realms? Forgotten Realms. That was Yeah, I played a lot of Forgotten Realms, but... I mean, I think Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk are both good because they serve as very simple core worlds. Mm-hmm. But you, you had, like, uh, Karatur, which was, again, the... You, you know, your Oriental Adventures... And you had Al Kadim, which was if you wanted to give an Arabian Nights flavor to your campaign. Yep. Yeah, and, I remember playing Al Kadim. But you also had other things that they brought in with some of the settings, like for example, Dark Sun. One of the things I loved about Dark Sun, even though I haven't done much gaming in that setting, is it was just so different than your standard D and D game. Um, another good example, Dragonlance. Yeah, it had a lot of things that were similar to standard D&D, but if you did your campaign around the time of the War of the Lance, you're not going to have clerics until you go through that Zax Tarith and get the, you know, the Discs of Mishakul and then finally manage to get, you know, clerics back into the world. Right. And, of course, you had Kender as another one of your races. Oh. <laughs> hey, Kender remind, can... me some, remind me someday I'll tell you a Kender story, but... Not today. Okay. And then uh, they also had, they, they, they made a distinct difference between the hill dwarves and the, you know, and the, and the mountain dwarves. So mm-hmm. I think even though it looked a lot like a standard D&D setting, it did bring some new things to the table. Um, of course, Spelljammer took everything into outer space. Or was Spelljammer second edition? I think Spelljammer was second edition. I'm yeah. trying to remember if uh, Strahd World was first or second to begin with. Was that the one where they... Strahd Ravenloft. World, Ravenloft? Ravenloft. Yeah, because I know they had the first edition... I believe the first edition module for Ravenloft, and I think the... I and think the, the Raven setting came out in second ed. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Ravenloft came out in second ed, but again, yeah. it had a different flavor because it was supposed to be more of your gothic horror, yeah. and, you know, you had your horror checks, and you know, just the very nature of the plane, you know, spells worked differently. And another one that I think, I'm trying to, okay, it it fell out of my head. So, oh no, this was related to Ravenloft. The Mask of the Red Death setting, where um, I think you would have liked that. I mean, have you ever played Mask of the Red Death? I have not. I have looked at it, but I have not, uh, I have not played it. Yeah, because I... I played some of it when I was in RPGA. Essentially what Mask of the Red Death was 
using things from Ravenloft and putting it into a Victorian setting. So, uh, I mean, they didn't specifically do anything with Cthulhu mythos in there, but, I mean, I could see you being able to integrate, integrate, I cannot talk tonight. You know what, now you got me doing it. <laughs> um, you could bring stuff from the Cthulhu mythos into Mask of the Red Death and it would not be terribly out of place. How does that sound? That's better. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, like I said, that's one thing that was nice about first edition. It really wasn't very splat heavy. Then we get into second edition. Which wasn't very splat heavy for a while. Yep. And see, the thing is, this is what I heard. Um, my friend Dan... I, I think they mentioned this in the uh, the, an, the D- Dungeons and Dragons anniversary book. It was the one where they had the foreword by Vin Diesel. So thirty years, yeah, yeah. Prepared. I think it was like twenty-five or thirty-year anniversary of D and D, somewhere yeah. around there. But one of the things that uh, one of the authors, I forgot who it was, you know, had mentioned was that you know around this time, this is where we saw all these splat books, like you know, the Complete Fighters Handbook, Complete Ranger, Complete Paladin. Then, you know, Wizard, and they had the Necromancer book, they had the Priest book, they had the Druid book, they had the Thief book, they had the Cleric book, they had the Ninja book, they had the, um, you know, the Bard book, they had the Barbarian book, and I I think... complete set of the complete. Yep. Hey, do you have any of the historical references? I don't remember if I did or not. Um, I had the Blue Arms and Equipment Guide. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I have, and then, they, yeah, they also had the the Blue One series, the, you know, the Book of Villains. They had the Monster Mythology. They had the, you know, the Arms and Equipment Guide. They had Castles and something guide. Yeah, castles and, think Castles and Fortresses or Castles yeah, and Yeah, something like that. So and, you want to hear a real quick, sad second ad story? Sure. <laughs> so I had all my second ad stuff, right? hmm And I needed money. So my older brother is also a role player. And I said, you want you interested in buying this stuff? And he said, yeah. And so we agreed on a price. I sold it because I needed the money. With the, with the caveat of if you ever want to get rid of it, I get first chance at buying it back. Okay. So about two years ago, I said to him, I said, uh, do you role play anymore? And he goes, not really. I said, so you interested in selling me back my uh, second ed stuff? And he goes, oh, I sold it two years ago. Oh, no. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you son of a... Exactly. Yeah, and I, I know, I mean, I, I had a time many years ago where I was a little, you know, tight for money and I wasn't playing as much as I used to, so I sold a lot of my second edition stuff and I slowly bought it back from, you know, half-price books and uh, second-hand sources. But, yeah, I mean, first second edition really exploded with the splats. And I, I, I forgot who said it, but supposedly one of the authors authors or one of the people at TSR, he compared it kind of like a rock band. I mean, first, originally they were planning on doing the Fighter's Book, the Priest Book, the Wizard Book, and the Thieves Book. And okay. then that was it. But then again, they this is where he, he brought in the analogy of it being like a rock band where no one's controlling the volume. Because it's like, okay, they brought out with the, you know, the, the Rangers and the Plans book, and they wanted to, you know, make those more powerful than the options that were in the Fighter's Handbook. So then, you know, it's like, say someone wants to hear more bass, so he turns the volume on the bass up. But then, hey, here's someone who likes 
uh, thief characters. So they create the Bard's Book and they create the Ninja's Handbook. And it's almost like, okay, well, let's take that lead guitar and let's turn them up even more. And then eventually it just became kind of like a rock band where everyone's playing, but no one's adjusting the levels. Yeah, everybody's playing at 11. Yeah, exactly. Hey, nice reference there. Uh, <laughs> 10 points of geek cred if you know where that – how about this? 11 points of geek cred if you know where that turn it up to 11 comes from. But anyways. And I can oh, kind of see where – show notes. What's that? I said Al will put it in the show notes. If I remember, yes. <laughs> turn it up <laughs> to 11. and But I can kind of see what they were – where he was going when he said it was like a, a rock band where no one was adjusting the volumes. Um. I mean, I honestly, I don't think that they should have just kept it. Well, I think the fight for the Warriors, they could have kept that at the Fighter's Handbook because they did have a lot of information in there that you could use for your Ranger or your Paladin as well as a Fighter. Mm -hmm. I don't think we really needed the Necromancer's book, I though I do have to admit it is kind of a, an interesting book to read. I'm not sure I would even say they needed the Druid's Handbook. But I do like how they released the the Bard's Handbook. And the reason is, now it, it has been a while since I've read my Complete Thieves Handbook, but I don't think that they really gave much to for Bards to work with in the Complete Thieves Handbook. So I can see how the Complete Bard's Handbook was justified. Because uh, most of the, are you familiar with a lot of the character kits in uh, in the Thieves Handbook? No, I, I mean, they, there was what? There was the cut purse, there was... Like uh, the scout and the, the, cat the burglar. burglar, yeah. Most of it was something like, okay, if you take this kit, you get a plus 10% to this thieving skill, but a minus 10% to this one. And so, like I said, for bards, there really wasn't much to work with. But the bards handbook, it gave you some really cool kits. Like yeah, when, but, you know, you were still a bard. Yeah. Well, one of my favorites was actually the blade, where they dress in black and they're they're really good at using weapons, edge weapons. And one of the things that they mention in, at the end of that description is, you know, they fight as rogues and they don't gain a single hit or damage bonus, but they're still very flashy combatants that can be very useful. And I remember one of the descriptions I loved in there. It's like, okay, imagine that you're an orc, and there's two character, two uh, adventurers blocking your way. One of them's dressed in plate mail and is, you know, holding like a, you know, a long sword. The other one is dressed all in black and is using a halibird. And they start approaching, and the guy in black starts swinging around his halibird at crazy speeds. It's like, okay, if you're the orc, which one are you gonna go after? <laughs> Right, right. And they also had some other fun ones in there, like the Gallant. They also had the Scalid, uh, which was based more on the you know the Norse bards. So there was they had some really good stuff in there. And honestly, I think the Ninja's Handbook was a good addition as well. Well, y yes and no. I mean, the problem with the Ninja Handbook is then everybody wanted to be a ninja, no matter well, what setting you were playing in. And it's like, you know, we're playing in a medieval time that's not oriental. You know, ninjas really don't fit. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. As a DM, that was that was my hardest part with the ninjas was it was, you know. See, the thing I, the reason I like the ninjas handbook is there really wasn't much for like a monk in second edition. 
And I understand part of the reason why is because they felt that belonged more in Oriental Adventures. But a lot of the stuff from the first edition Oriental Adventures book did make its way into the Ninja's Handbook in some form or another. Personally, I don't think ninjas were too overpowered in second edition. Um, some of the martial arts stuff that they introduced in there was really useful, I think. But I think the main reason they did that is was to give players the ability to do a monk or martial arts type character in second edition. Because, um, I mean, I know in the priest handbook they had the fighting monk, um, which, again, was supposed to be based more on the Shaolin monk type character. Mm-hmm. And then they also had in the Wizard's Handbook, the Wu Jen. The Fighter's Handbook had the Samurai. And I don't think there was really anything really Oriental in the Thieves' Handbook. I don't think so. I'd have to say you're right on that. Yeah, and I think it's just with the Thieves' Handbook. It was focused more on, okay, what thieving skill do you want to get really good at but take a penalty to another one for? So Mm -hmm. that was my major gripe with the Thieves' Handbook. Yeah. And then, of course, they made the race handbooks. There was the Book of Gnomes and Elves. No, there was the Book of Gnomes and Halflings. There was the Book of Elves. There was the Book of Dwarves. There was the Humanoids handbook. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, it did add more things that, which, while cool, really weren't necessary. And mm-hmm. I can see how some people would think that would be kind of overpowering. And we haven't even gotten to the historical books either. Yeah. Yeah, see, the the problem I think I have with Splat Books is the way that I like to role play. Mm-hmm. I'm very much a character builder. I And by that, I mean, you know, there are guys that will sit down and they'll read through the books and they'll go, all right, I'm going to be a, you know, first level, I'm going to be a fighter. And second level, I'm going to take another level of fighter. Then third level, I'm going to take a level of rogue. So I'm a fighting thief, you know. And then I'm going to take, a, you know, and they build their character. And I've seen them, I've seen them built out the 20th level. So when they level up, they know exactly what they're doing already. And they're, you know, and they're going to do it come hell or high water. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the story dictates it or not. This is, this is the character build they came up with because it's the coolest character build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I can see it is fun to build a character that you can role play. But sometimes it is kind of nice to have like a plus one to this or a plus two to that. And that's one of the reasons why I did like the kits in the complete handbooks is it gave you a way to differentiate, you know, Bob's fighter from Joe's fighter and Pete's wizard from Jim's wizard and so on. I guess I'm more of the one I'll say, okay, I'm going to make a rogue. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to make first level rogue. If somebody asks me what I'm going to do at second level, I'll tell them it depends on what the story tells me to do. You know, because it doesn't make any sense for me to go, well, I'm going to be a rogue at first level, and then second level, I'm going to take a level of sorcerer. Because all of a sudden, we spent the whole getting from level one to level two by, you know, me cutting purses. That's how I did it, you know? I I did it by stealing from people. So why would I want to put in a level of sorcerer when I obviously need another level of rogue, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. And see... That is honestly, and I I know there's going to be people that will disagree with me on this, and that's fine, but in a way I did kind of like the idea they did with multiclassing in 3rd edition, where, you know, like let's say you wanted to make a fighter, but maybe you wanted to have a few, take a couple levels in cleric, 
just so you can have a couple of, you know, extra heal light wounds handy. Right. Because, you know, it never hurts to have a few extra healing spells available. Especially or, when you're a fighter. <laughs> exactly. And you can only carry so many potions, let's be honest. Yes, exactly. And uh, another example with thieves. I mean, I could see thieves learning a little bit of magic because I could see how something like, you know, an illusion spell, you know, might be able to be very helpful for a thief. Right. And, and, I, and I think maybe you're misunderstanding where I was going with that. I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm not saying that multi-classing is bad. What I'm saying is planning it out ahead of time before you even know what the adventure or the story is seems, you know, and then you're going to become that character. Or you're going to push it through based on what you want to do, based on what gives you the biggest bonus in the end. Yeah. And, and to me, you, your character takes on a life of its own and you have to do what makes sense to the character, even if it doesn't necessarily make the most sense for your bonuses. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, and I, I know, and that's one of the things that I do admit. I don't really like the whole idea with with the prestige classes in the third edition, where it's based mostly on, like, okay, you know, you do have to kind of, if you want to be, I don't know, a, a Knight of Bahamut, let's just say that's a prestige class that someone made up, Knight of Bahamut, you have to plan ahead. It's like, okay, I if I want to be a Knight of Bahamut, that means when I reach this level, I have to take this feat, and I have to put a few more points into this. But yep. it seems we're transitioning into third, level, into third edition. Well, so, I think that's probably my strong point, which is yeah. probably why I'm dragging you there. <laughs> yeah, and, and you will know a lot more about third edition than I will. The only third edition product I have right now is just the 3.5 Player's Handbook. So, okay. Which, honestly... I think that the third edition, the 3.5 handbook did actually give you a pretty good amount of material to create a good character. That's going to be fun to play. They and, did. I mean, I have run a lot of campaigns, 3.5 campaigns based on the three core books. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll tell my players core book, player's handbook. That's it. And then they're like, can I? No, <laughs> because this is this is my guarantee to you. If you only work out of the core book, I'm only going to work out of Monster Manual 1. That is true, because one of the things that I think players forget is if the Game Master allows you to use it, they get to use it as yep. well. Absolutely. It's just like when I make a ruling, you know, on, on the fly, because I am a rules light GM. Anybody that plays with me knows that's the way it works. And, you know, I will make a ruling... You know, and if it's wrong, we'll talk about it afterwards and we'll change it going forward. Mm -hmm. But I don't like to sit and, and debate a lot on on rules. I'd rather the story take, you know, get rid of the numbers, let's tell the story. Yeah, and I have to agree with you on that one because, you know, we were actually, before we started recording, we were talking about um, um th this good movie called The Gamers, Yes. And this actually is kind of relevant um, to what we were talking about. Uh, for those who haven't, maybe not have heard of it or seen it, The Gamers was a low-budget movie where it jumps back and forth between what the players are doing at the table and what their characters would be doing in the fantasy world. And near the end, there's a scene where the thief's like, um, you know, he walks into the room and he triggers a trap and dies. 
And then the, you know, he's like, but wait a second, I'm an experienced thief. I wouldn't do that. I would actually creep stealthily forward. And the game master's like, fine, we'll do it again. And it goes back. And this time the thief character is quietly sneaking into the room and triggers a trap. It kills him. And he's like, no, did I say carefully sneak in the room? I meant crawling inch by inch. Checking for traps. Yes. And he still dies. And he still dies. And I'm like, okay, who has the most hit points? They send the barbarian. He triggers a trap. You take thirty-nine damage. Oh, I've only got like eighty hit points left. And yeah, um, but yeah. I, and then one of my other favorite scenes in that is um, the they're at a bar, and you know the thief goes to go steal the pants off of a bar tavern. Literally, he manages to steal his pants off of him. And they have this. I did. I did have a problem with that scene. Really? What GM only gives you a negative eight to stealing some man's pants? <laughs> he must be a either a really generous GM, or maybe he figured that the the patron at the bar was so drunk he wouldn't have noticed that his pants were taken from him. I I, I guess, but I'm just like as a GM when I heard that the first time, I went, "What negative eight? But you gotta admit, what happened next was awesome. Yeah, he's like there's this big tough guy that's gonna you know, that's confronting the thief's friends at a table, and he's like. Does he know I'm there? Game Master rolls the dice. No, he doesn't know you're there. It's like, okay, I go in for a backstab. The thief draws his dagger. It's like, yeah, that's a pretty big guy. Do you think that a dagger's going to do it? You know, even with triple damage? He's like, okay, fine. He pulls out his longsword. He's like, no, I've got an idea. And he starts setting up a siege crossbow. He's like, I'm going to backstab him with a ballista. <laughs> and it's like, you know, he's like, you can't do that. It's like, it doesn't say I can't do that in the rules. Yeah, so he's back there cranking it up. <laughs> yeah, and, and we were even joking about it. You know, how you never know. There might be some players like, I know, I'm going to try to backstab while doing a charge with a heavy lance on a, on my war horse. And, you know, because I'll just cast silence on the horse. But that, anyway. That's why you need those levels of wizard. Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly to cast. Well, I thought silence was a cleric spell. Sounds oh, maybe 50, it is. I don't anyways. know. Yeah, that's why you need some spell casting levels. So you're th- and a, maybe a couple of fighter levels, so you can use the horse, la- the the you know the horseman's lance. Where yeah, yeah okay, I'm gonna cast my uh, wizard. I'm gonna cast my spell to silence myself and my horse, and backstabs with a a heavy horseman's lance. So by the time you're level nineteen, you might be able to pull that all off. <laughs> yeah, and, but in the second one. And this is where we, you know, we were talking about this before we recorded. Uh, in the second one, it's got a bit higher budget. Now, in the first one, they didn't specifically mention what role-playing game they were playing. Probably because they didn't have, or they decided they didn't want to get permission from Wizards of the Coast. Even but though, in, if you watch the movie, they are they have third edition books. Yep, it's just they. I know they put like the brown paper bag coverings over them. Yeah, but, yeah, but they, they have the books open in some of the scenes, and I'm like, I know that picture. Yeah. <laughs> and in the second one, they, they definitely are doing 3.5, and they show shots of the handbook and stuff like that. And they were uh, they were ripping on the, the, the female gamer in the group because, you know, she was playing a fighter, and she didn't have a strength bonus. She put her highest abilities in intelligence, dexterity, and charisma. And they were, when they were getting in their first fight, you know, they roll initiative and of course the, you know, the female fighter wins Mm -hmm. and they're like, you know, the other guys are complaining because, well, before it's like, you took improved initiative. No one chooses improved initiative. 
But Which is a lie. Yes, that it has a very helpful skill. As, as a rogue, I almost always take it. Yep. So then it's like she kills like three or four goblins before the rest of the characters can even act. And they're like, how did you do that? He's like, well, I took improved initiative so I'd have a better chance of going first. And then I took this feat, which means that if I attack first, you know, if I strike first, I get, you know, this bonus. And then I took this other feat, which means that if I do, if I kill an enemy on my, you know, my first attack, I get a free attack against another enemy. And I took this feat and they were saying like her critical rating was like 13 to 20, which I think we were discussing before is unless there's some like, goofy third-party handbook out there that should not be possible it probably came out of a splat book exactly exactly because <laughs> that's what we were saying it's like gee i wonder if they were almost taking a subtle jab at uh third edition and some of the criticisms people had of it right but, right so third edition splat books i mean there are so many of them i mean if i just turn around here and look at my shelf uh i've got races of stone races of destiny Sandstorm, uh, Spell Compendium, which, eh, but I got the Planar Handbook, the Epic Level Handbook, the Dragonomicon, the uh, Complete Scoundrel, Drowse of the Underdark, Book of Vile Darkness. I mean, you know, and I'm not a splat book guy, and I guess uh, Drowse of the the Underdark is probably more of a setting than a splat book. Ah. yeah, because it what? wasn't second edition. Because um, the I know they had the Drow the Underdark handbook. Then they also released the Menzo Brands in box set. Yeah. But, so I mean, the splat books are endless, and you know it, it's kind of funny. I bought the Complete Scoundrel because, like I said, I play rogues. Yeah. It's what I've been doing for twenty years, and if you ask me in twenty years, I'll probably still be playing rogues. You know what I use out of there most of the time? What's that? Is an item. <laughs> what item is that? Simple, it, it's called a rust cube. Okay. So what you do is you buy these rust cubes, and when you fight a fighter, you know, somebody in big heavy metal, oh. <laughs> you take one of these rust cubes and you throw it at them. And if it hits their armor, it acts like a rust monster. So yeah, as I say, it's basically a rust monster in the palm of your hand. Yes. You know, and that is one thing I have to say. Some of these books you know, supplement books have introduced some spells that their effects might be subtle, but they can be really darn effective. Uh, the guy who's running my current second edition game, when he was a player in a campaign I was running, he took this one spell for his wizard, I think it was called like Otto's Chime of Release. You cast the spell and the target, anything they're wearing that's tied or buckled instantly comes undone. You nice. do it at a fighter in plate mail, boom, his plate mail all falls off. You right. do it at a wizard, boom, all his spell pouches come off. I will have to say, I have seen him use that spell very creatively. Well, yeah, and like the rust cubes, basically what it does is once per round, it it weakens the hardness of your armor by one. Okay. So every round it goes down by one. So if you got plate mail, let's say, which I believe has a, a hardness of 14... So it's going to take several rounds to completely dissolve the armor. But in that time, it gets easier and easier for me to hit this fighter that I'm standing toe-to-toe with. That is true. Or it makes it easier for your, you know, your allied fighter to be able to go in for the kill. Right, right. And 
Yeah, and I I know there were all, of course, oh, I know there were tons of them, and I don't, I don't know how much of it we can really point at Wizards, though, because since they came up with this idea of doing the open gaming license, that kind of opened the doors where there were going to be a lot of splat books, but I don't think we can re- we should really consider that for the purpose of this discussion, mainly because since those were third party, Wizards had no control over what was being released and how much. Right, right, to a certain degree. I, I completely, I, I don't think we can blame Wizards. I mean, unless we want to blame them for the open gaming license, but then, you know, the open gaming license has opened up so much in our hobby that... Uh, yeah, and that's one of the... That's yeah. almost it's a thing for that's almost a topic for its own discussion, but yeah, yeah. I, I I know there are people who think that the the D twenty license only helped the industry in the end because it did give some small publishers a chance to really go in and get some get an audience. And right. the main I remember reading an article, I think it was on the Escapist website. They had a three-part series, and I highly recommend looking it up if you have a chance. The first one is called Ghosts of D&D Past. The next one was called Ghosts of D&D Present, and then Ghosts of D&D Future. And one of the things that they mentioned about the D20 system and why they did the, the open gaming license is it allowed... it would, Well, first, it would allow small publishers with big ideas an easy way to enter into the gaming market because... If I publish a book that's D20 compatible, there's already an audience for it. Whereas in my case, most of the stuff I published is my own original stuff. So there isn't going to be a pre-built audience for that. Right, right. In a way, it's kind of like making a a game, a role-playing game based on a, you know, a franchise like Doctor Who or, I mean, let's say, for example, I win the lottery and I get to buy the rights to make a Star Wars role-playing game. Right. While it might cost me an arm and a leg to get that licensing rights, I know there's a built-in audience for that already. Right. But also the D20 system, it would allow these publishers to fill niches that Wizards either didn't have the time or the interest in filling. Like we were talking about this before we recorded. Guardians of Order, may they had their own original game called Big Eyes, Small Mouth, or Beezum, which was anime role-playing. Eventually, they went on to release Beezum D20. So if you are looking for more of an anime feel to your you know, your campaign, you could do this book, and it was fairly compatible with the D20 rules. Right. Well, speaking of third edition, and this is a... This is a we we kind of have to talk about Pathfinder because it is related to third edition, and this is something that you know a lot more about than I do. Um, how was Pathfinder with their splat in relation to, or when compared to Dungeons and Dragons? A lot less of it. However, they did instead. You know how third edition and a lot of them they do these soft cover, you know, sixty page splat books. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna grab one off my shelf here. Ultimate Combat. Okay. It is hardcover. It's, um, I'm just looking here, 250 some odd pages. And it has splat for all your combat-based characters. Um, it has it adds things like the samurai, 
and certain types and certain um, what you would call kits or used to be called kits. They're now called archetypes. You know, and it's for all your fighters. It's paladins. It's got new feats. It's got, you know, stuff for bards. Let's see here. They have an alchemist, a barbarian, a bard, a cavalier, uh, stuff for clerics, druids, fighters. They introduced the gunslinger, um, which starts bringing guns into your campaign if you would so enjoy to do something like that. Um, Inquisitors, Magus, which are basically battle clerics, um, monks, paladins, rangers, rogues, wizards, and they have different archetypes and they have new feats and they have new armor. This one has vehicles in it, new spells because there are some combat-based spells, that kind of stuff. They take, in, in my estimation, they take three, four, five, six different splat books they throw it in a hardcover, they throw $40 on the cover, and it's actually a much better deal, if you ask me, for a splat book than your 80-page, $20 splat book. Yeah, and, and I can see how that was a wise move on their part, because given a choice, I would rather buy one big splat book than a bunch of little ones. And near the end of D&D, when they came up with what some people call D&D, or second edition... 2.5 when they re-released the, the books covers. yep the black covers they did have one called the skills and powers book where they started to move towards introducing uh kits that anyone could take as opposed to being okay here's a fighter specific kit here's a a cleric specific kit and so on and they tried to give you a lot more versatility so I've read the book a little bit, but I haven't, you know, fully delved into it. But it sounds like they, you know, that Pathfinder tried to go for that, where it's like, okay, as you said, instead of buying a bunch of little splat books, here's just one big one. Right. And, you know, I like that. And I think that does sound look like a good idea, because, yeah, I'd rather buy one big $40 book than a bunch of, you know, $20 books. Right. And it's, it's everything's in one place, so you're not digging from book to book. Let's see, was this, okay, was that uh, Fighter's, with that kit I wanted for my uh, Ranger, was that in the Ranger's Handbook or the Fighter's Handbook? I forget. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, Pathfinder, they, they did their splat books, absolutely. Um, I've kind of gotten away from Pathfinder. I've gone pretty heavy lately into the Call of Cthulhu thing, and I'm... I'm going to be laying some money down here pretty soon on 7th edition Call of Cthulhu. You know, they've continued on with Pathfinder too. There are more splat books out there now. Um, Yeah, and and you'll notice that we haven't really talked about 4th edition, and it's because we don't really, between the two of us, we really don't have as much experience with that edition. I have little to none. I, I owned my game store at the time it came out, and so I have the core set. And I read through it. It's World of Warcraft in a book form. Yeah, and the thing that I don't like about how they did the Player's Handbook, how they had Player's Handbook 1, Player's Handbook 2, Player's Handbook 3, where it's like, okay, so if you wanted to play like a gnome monk, you'd, well, in 3rd edition, you could just do that in one book. But in 4th edition, if you wanted to play a gnome monk... You had to have three books. You had to have the core handbook so you knew the rules, and then you had to have the, you know, the second 
Player's Handbook, which I believe introduced the monks as a race. I'm sorry, the gnomes as a race, and then the third one, which had the monks. So it's like, uh, I mean, yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, they got I, rid of the gnome as a player character, and they gave us tieflings. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I would have much rather. I think tieflings would have been better as a, um, you know, as some a supplement instead of something you would find in the core book and yeah i mean and this could this is probably a topic best addressed on its own but i think a lot of the decisions that that wizards made at the time of fourth edition were probably based on what they perceived as changes in the role-playing game market and having to compete with uh having to compete with uh yeah compete with these online role-playing games and i think hasbro kind of had some uh saying that as well i think so but you know the the mistake they made is they were they were putting this game out for the kids that are playing video games now there are some you know our age you're a big video game guy i'm not but you know they were aiming it towards these kids in that 10 to 19 age there's no money there yeah and you know, I think that part of the problem is, and they risk doing this every time they do a new edition is, you know, you always risk losing some of your fan base when you make those changes. And as I said, we're, we, we can probably address that in an entirely yeah. new episode, but you know, of course I just don't, I don't want to, if we do that topic, you know, of course we want to approach it in a way where we're not coming off as edition warriors. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. They said, but that's a topic all on its own, but I think we've, talked enough about this topic of how much is too much for now so (laughs) chad if people want to uh, read some of your writings and ramblings and get some more of your wit and wisdom where can they find it they can find it at www.nuosu.com i'm sorry dot blogspot.com that is nothing to do with gaming your guys can also go um, EverCon, which is a con locally here that I've been involved with for the past six years. Mm-hmm. We've been a two-day con for the past uh, 16 years. Um, is now going to a three-day con, and we're moving venue. Our venue is now going to be the um, Central Wisconsin uh, Something. something or other. <laughs> it used to be called the Patriot Center. Anybody around here will know it as the Patriot Center. So we're going to a full convention center. We're going to a full three-day convention. It'll be January uh, 6th through the 8th in 2017. Hopefully it will be well worth enduring the Wisconsin winter for it, right? <laughs> it will be. It will be. In fact, I'm going to uh, go so far as to say uh, we're going to have a nice January this year. I hope so. <laughs> but, and of course, if you want to find some of my stuff, you can go to POIGamestudio.com, my website. You can catch other episodes of Geekery in general at POIGamestudio.podbean.com. And if you like watching videos of video game play, please feel free to stop by my YouTube channel. Just look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on YouTube and you'll see the video versions of some of my episodes. And while you're at it, why don't you go on to Facebook and look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. Uh, feel free to stop by, like the page. and So with that thoughts in your head, thanks for joining me, Chad, and hope you all uh, enjoyed the show and have a good evening or morning or afternoon. 
whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.